0: Turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and let me explain uh, what's happening this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is God's word to the preacher and the pastor. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. You can reword that as preach the word, be ready when your lead pastor is healthy and when his voice goes out at 9.30 in the morning. Uh, and so that is actually what happened. Cliff uh, is our beloved uh, lead pastor. He doesn't call himself the senior pastor because Jesus is that, but he is our lead pastor and he did come ready to preach. Um, and uh, by the providence of God, uh, his voice Went out. So you can keep his family in prayer. We'd love him to come back next week and preach for us again. Uh, so keep him in prayer. At the same time, uh, just a couple chapters back, Paul does say that, Though he suffers hardship and even imprisonment as a criminal, in chapter 2, verse 9, the word of God is not imprisoned, and for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Uh, God still has providentially ordained that the word will go out from the pulpit this morning, and with that that thought uh, and with that charge, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This was the scripture reading from this morning, and uh, I'm going to read it again and we'll go through particularly verses 7 through 14 uh, but we do need the whole context of uh chapters or verses 1 through 15 to understand it turn to philippians chapter 3 finally my brethren i'm in verse 1 rejoice in the lord to write the same things again is of no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Church, beware of false teachers and false worshipers. For we, Paul says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory and who glory in Christ Jesus. We are the ones who truly are born again, regenerate worshipers of God who glory in Christ Jesus. We are the true Christians and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have confidence, even in the flesh, might have confidence. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me. Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many of us are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Join with me one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word and its ability to open up our hearts and dissect it and reveal to us where we are and show us where we need to be. And I pray that your word would go forth with power, that Christ would be exalted and we would be changed in the process. We ask for your blessing and the Spirit's power in me and in everybody else this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in between serving at my previous church and serving here at GBF as a teaching pastor, I had to get a part-time job, and I've mentioned this before, as a high school chemistry teacher. And when you're teaching high school students who are not only in high school, whose brains are still forming, but who don't want to be in your class Especially learning something like chemistry. Uh, you have, you just have to learn how to communicate things in a more clear and succinct way. And one of the first things I had to explain to them, which was in the curriculum, is what is a pure substance? What makes pure gold, pure gold? And here was the answer from the textbook. A pure substance is something that's uniform. It's the same everywhere inside and outside, and unchanging in its composition. It's the same both inside and outside, and it never changes in its composition, regardless of the external conditions. And they said, what does that mean? And because I was in a Christian school, I had the liberty to actually throw this in there, and I said, well, what do you think it means for us to be pure worshipers? And that's when they got their attention a little bit. And I said, pure worship is this. Just take every, everything that I said and put the word worship in there. So pure worship is the worship of God that is uniform. It's the same inside and outside, and it is unchanging regardless of the circumstances. It means that you are worshiping God and God only and none other than God and always doing so no matter what the circumstances, good or bad. And in reality... How many people actually think day to day what it means to worship God? And my question is, how do you know from the heart? How do you know you ask yourself this right now? How do you know that you are an actual worshiper of Jesus Christ? because that that's what makes up the church. What makes you different from the world is not the things that you wear. We don't uh, I'm not up here wearing a tunic. It's not even the vocabulary you use necessarily. It's what's going on in your heart when you think about Jesus Christ. And the question is this, when you think about Christ, is worshiping happening? Is worship happening or is worship not happening? And the reason why it's not it's a heart issue is because Christianity, and I've seen this now, I've had the privilege of bringing the word to believers in different countries, Argentina, India, the Philippines. If you consider Hawaii a different country, that one counts too. Um, I guess it is. It's in a different part of the world. Uh, and if you consider San Jose and Silicon Valley its own country, because it actually kind of is, um, there is a different expression of Christianity depending on where you go, what region you're in, and what church you're in. Music sounds different. The dress code sounds different. Uh, in another church, if I were preaching today, I'd, I'd have to wear, I guess I'd have to wear a suit. Um, I'm glad I don't here and don't ever make that a requirement here. The music sounds different. The language sounds different. The way people relate to each other looks different. The fellowship meal looks different and smells different and tastes different. So the expression of Christianity is supposed to be different wherever you go, whatever church you go, in, in the practical detail of it. And even... Even as you jump from one family to the other. And that's why Paul says uh, to each man his own. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. Whoever eats, let him eat for the Lord. Whoever doesn't eat, let him do it for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we do it for the Lord. So the expression of Christianity is different wherever you go. And even amongst the people in this church. We have a diverse church, diverse age range, demographic, ethnic range. And what the worship of Christ looks like in the practical detail of your life could be very, very different from this person sitting here and this person sitting there, or there and here. But Christianity and the worship of Jesus Christ is identical in the internal condition of every believer. What's happening in the heart as you look at Christ is not up to you. There should be something happening in your heart, and it should be the same thing happening in another Christian's heart, wherever that person is in the world, because worship from an internal perspective looks the same. It's in the same way as you can think of every Olympic athlete, no matter what the sport, has one goal. They have one goal. And it's not the silver medal. It's the gold medal. They may train differently. They may, wear, they may have a different set of people working with them, but the goal is the same. All Christians have the same goal. All Christians have the same heart. And when God says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, when he tells that to Samuel as he's evaluating who's going to be king, when Jeremiah says that the Lord searches and tests the heart, when God looks at your heart, what is he seeing and hearing? And what he sees and hears that no one else may see determines the integrity of whether or not you're a Christian and you're a worshiper of Jesus Christ. The reason why Paul makes a reference to the old circumcision here or the circumcision is because the old covenant people Jewish Israel, we're marked by external circumcision. In other words, how did you know someone was part of the community of God's people? It's because the males and their family were circumcised. We're under the new covenant. You don't prove yourself to be a believer by circumcision. I hope no one's here who's tried to do that. right? You prove who you are not by your external actions, by what's going on inside. And Philippians is a good book to look at that because it talks about the effect of the gospel in the heart of a Christian and specifically the joy and the fellowship and the affections that it produces in the Christian. So when you look at the book of Philippians, Paul talks so much about how he feels, what he wants, what he desires. Gospel affects the way we live, it affects the way we think, it affects the way we feel. And it affects the way we worship. And so he says in chapter, in verses 2 and 3, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. In other words, church, there are a lot of people out here, out there, who look like Christians and call themselves Christians and look like Christian teachers and are not. Beware of them. They're a false circumcision. They're not real. And Paul says, for we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. In other words, how do you know that we're real and they're not real? He says it. He says, we who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what is the mark of a true Christian? It's someone who worships in the spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul defines what this false circumcision is because that's what he formerly was. In other words, he says, listen to what I'm going to say, and this is what I used to put my confidence in. Paul says, I used to place my confidence in my pedigree. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which was the instruction back in the Old Testament for every Jewish boy who was going to be a part of the covenant people. He's of the nation of Israel. In other words, Paul saying, I could boast in who I am ethnically because I'm not a Gentile Christian. And not only that, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the most prominent, the most distinguished tribe in Israel. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I could have boasted in who I am culturally. I'm not a Hellenized Jew. By culture, by custom, I am fully Jewish, he says. By the language I speak. He's studied under Gamaliel, the prominent Jewish rabbi. In other words, of all people, I am the Harvard-educated Jew. And not only that, but I'm a Pharisee, the most learned, skilled At least they thought the most learned and the skilled interpreter of the law. So in other words, when it comes to theology, when it comes to Christian education, I am part of the elite. When was the last time you met someone who placed their confidence in how much they know about the Bible? But he says, not only what I learned, but look at what I did. I was a persecutor of the church. I went above and beyond. I didn't just say I didn't like Christians. I actually went from house to house and dragged them out of their house. I am a passionate person. I'm not just an educated person. I'm not just a cultured person. I'm a passionate person. I'm zealous more than any of you. And if it was up to me, my former self, I would have used that as a way to prove that I am a true follower of God. When was the last time you've met someone who placed their faith and boasting and how passionate they are? But then he says, he goes a step further. This is incredible. He says in verse six, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, I met, Every requirement, at least I thought, that the law had. And Paul says, if there's anyone who could have, who could have placed any kind of confidence in and of himself, it would have been him because of his pedigree, because of his personal achievements, and because of his personal piety. But Paul says, I'm scratching that. This is why I'm a worshiper of Christ. It's not because of who, of what I've done. The reason why I am a worshiper of Christ is because of what goes on in here when I think of him up there. And then he says, let those of you, as many as are perfect, in other words, maturity. Let those of you who claim to be mature, in verse 15, have this attitude. The mindset of a mature Christian is everything you see in verses 7 through 14. There has been no text No text that has ever challenged me in the realm of my own integrity as a Christian in life and in ministry and the sincerity of my heart and the genuineness of my growth and walk. Because here's here's what this verse is saying. If verses 7 through 14 is not happening inside of you, if the words that are here are not resonating in your heart, then what are you doing here? And are you who you say you are? Is Jesus Christ, in other words, absolutely supreme in your heart? And listen to what Paul says as he proves, as he says, this is my mark as a true Christian, true circumcision. And there are four things he says. These are the four things that ought to be resonating in your heart. So if you're following along with notes, four heart resonations of a genuine Christian. The four statements that your heart, when pressed, bleeds. The first statement is this. In my heart, I treasure Christ above all else. In my heart, I treasure Christ above all else. Look at verse 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, whatever things I thought were valuable, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. In other words, when I look at Jesus Christ, everything else looks like sand, everything else looks like dirt, and Christ is a diamond. I'll lose everything for a diamond. All things, not just the things that I used to place my confidence in the past, but in verse 80 says, more than that, I count all things. All things. What do all things mean? It means all things, everything in the past, everything in the present, to be lost. I consider it in my mind, in my heart. This is how I think about Jesus. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The word there, surpassing, it's that Greek word that means you see something just rising above Everything else seems to drop down and something is rising above the surface that's of greatest value. Something is showing up in color when everything else is black and white. And Paul says that's what he feels, that's what he thinks when he sees Jesus. You know, I thought about what, what this actually looked like and I didn't understand the fullness of it until I got married and I remember that and it was a, it was just a, a really unique occasion it, it's a once in a lifetime thing if you haven't married you can attest to it um, as soon as i walked out uh, with the pastor and the rest of the groomsmen tears just started and i don't cry i have a hard time crying you can punch me and i won't cry uh, i walked out and tears just started falling and falling and falling to the point where i coughed out the mint and caught it with my hand that i was supposed to save in my mouth for the first kiss but i coughed it out because i was crying so hard and then a tissue had to be passed down the groomsman line to get to me from my grandma so i could wipe off the tears and then my brother saw that i was crying i was just that you're filled with emotion and uh and he prayed with me and then the music stopped and then he whispered to my ear and said i think that's her And more of it started to come and I remember it. When she walked down the aisle, it's vivid, right? It happened on August 22nd, 2009. I think. <laughs> and uh, everything really did. She said yes. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I almost said August 21st. Um, everything else seemed to disappear. And the only thing I could look at was her. Because everything looked of lesser value. And I hope that if you are a man here who got married, I hope that when your wife walked down the aisle, you didn't say, I can't believe how much I'm losing. I can't believe that I'm sacrificing all the other women in this audience. I hope you looked at her and said, everything else is of degrading value, and that is the only person who I want. Correct? And if you don't, I hope you get in trouble tonight. (laughs) Surpassing value of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Paul says, my Lord, it's personal. Not just the Lord of the universe, but my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. All things. I look at Christ and everything else I don't need. I've suffered the loss of all things. And not only that, but I count them as rubbish. The word for rubbish, the Greek word for rubbish here is... Well, you could translate in English as manure. Let's put it in there. I suffer the loss of all things and count them but dung so that I may gain Christ. In other words, when Paul looks at Christ from his heart and looks at everything else, you tell me, when you see dung, the only thing you want to do is discard it. The last thing you want to do is put it up on display and keep it with you. And I've had enough experience with it because I have two kids and two dogs. And as the dad, you have to deal with a lot of it, especially when the kids were young. And I told someone, I'm glad I took up swimming before I had kids because it was the perfect exercise for changing diapers. You change, you hold your breath and just turn and breathe, right? Just turn and breathe. Do it to both sides because I didn't get used to it. Good exercise for dog training too. The last thing, and this is what Paul is saying, this is the heart of a Christian. When I look at everything else compared to Christ, the last thing I want to do is keep it, and the only thing I want to do with all these things is discard it, and if that's what it means to have Jesus Christ, then let it be. So when John Piper says, God is more glorified in us, most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him, that ain't a John Piper quote. That's a biblical truth. Jesus says it. Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife. And by the way, don't go home and tell your wife you hate her. But it's it's the thought in comparison. The devotion to Christ is so strong because you treasure him above all else To where everything else compared to him looks like rubbish. And that is what's going on in the true heart of a Christ worshiper. Is that what's happening in your heart this morning? Is that what happened when you sang the songs? Or did you just look at the words and recite them because you felt bad if you didn't? I treasure Christ above all else. Number two. And this is in verse 9. I trust him above anyone else and only him. Trust is synonymous with belief, which is synonymous with faith. He says, not only do I treasure Christ, but this is the reason why, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, A righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, when Paul says, I have no righteousness of my own, he's not being falsely humble. This isn't just a, it's not just a mentality to have. It's a reality to swallow. Because there is a reason why Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross. And it wasn't because you did good things. When self-righteousness starts, that is also the moment when worship stops. You cannot be self-righteous. You cannot be thinking you're better than others. You cannot be thanking God for who you are above anybody else. And expect God to look at that as worship. When Christ, when God looked at the Pharisee in that parable who said, I thank you that I'm this, I thank you that I do this, I thank you that I do that, and I thank you that I'm not like him, he didn't go home justified. The one who went home justified is the one who said, be merciful to me, or in the Greek, propitiate for me, make an atonement for me, a sinner. You do not love Christ if you haven't come to an understanding of the totality of your depravity. If you feel good about your actions because you compare it to other people and place confidence in yourself. If I were to ask you, how do you know you're going to heaven? And you say, because I do good things then one thing is true. Heaven is one place that you're currently not headed to. Paul says, my righteousness is not of my own, but it's an alien righteousness. It's something that came outside of me that's given to me a righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, which comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus Christ not only died the death that we deserved, he lived a life that we could never live He had a righteousness. He had the righteousness that you need to stand before God and be justified that we were never able to attain. You know, one of the most profitable things that I ever had a chance to do was to study the Gospels in depth for a period of three years and preach through it because something happens to a preacher when he has to preach through the Gospels and the only thing he's talking about is the life of Jesus because you see You see with Christ the righteousness that God is expecting that you can't have. That every person in the Old Testament leading up to Christ wasn't able to have. And every person who's come after him hasn't been able to attain. You look at the compassion. You look at his resolve. You look at his worship. You look at his sacrifice. You look at his obedience. And you look at him and you say, I have not done that, but he has. And if I am going to stand before God and be declared righteous, I need the life that someone else lived. And you look at Christ and you say, that's the one that I want. There was a student who once asked me in a private conversation, how do I know if I'm saved? And I said, why are you struggling with your assurance? And he said, because I... Haven't done this. I haven't been going to church. I've been struggling with this sin and that sin. And I'm not sure if I'm saved. And I just asked him the question and said, do you really believe that whether or not you go to heaven depends entirely on the work of another person? And he said he had never been taught that even though he grew up in a Christian school and in a Christian home. A true believer looks at Christ and says, his life, what he did is enough for me to be justified before God. So if someone were to ask you, how do you know that you are saved? Your only answer should be, because of what he did. That is where worship starts. That is when worship is happening. And the more and more, I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul. He went from saying that he was blameless to being the chief of sinners. Because his perspective grew. He matured. Over time, the more and more he grew, the more and more he saw the reality of his sin, and the more and more he realized that he needed the life of another person to stand before God and not be punished. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith, through trust in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God, not on the basis of works that no man may boast, but on the basis of faith. Do you treasure Christ Jesus in your heart above all else, and do you trust him alone to bring you to the Father and not anybody else? Number three, and this is in verses 10 through 11, the third thing that should be resonating in your heart is, I want to be like Christ above all else. I want to be like him. I'm not just content that I've been saved from the punishment of my sins but he says in verse 10 and 11 that I may know him intimately and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Romans 6:11 says consider yourselves to be dead in sin. In other words, I'm not content just to be saved from my sin, but I want to be dead to my sin. That's how I'm going to think about myself and alive in Christ. The person who loves Christ wants to be like Christ, wants Christ to be formed in him like the Apostle Paul said. I labor with birth pains until Christ is formed in you because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live is not on my own, but it by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. The desire of a true worshiper of Christ is to see Jesus Christ formed in him, and he will do anything and everything he can to let go of sin and pursue Christ. He doesn't ask the question, is it wrong to do this? Is it wrong to do that? Are you flirting with sin? In other words, how far can I go? How far can I approach sin without actually sinning? When someone asks, well, is it wrong to do it? Well, is it against the rules to wear a ski jacket and ski boots when you're running a half marathon? It's not against, it's not against the rules, but who does that? Hopefully no one here. Lay aside every encumbrance. Desire the holiness of Jesus, partakers of his divine nature. You shouldn't be asking the question, is it wrong? What you should be asking is, is this what's best? I want to know the power of his resurrection. But not just that, you're going one step further. And this is where your relationship with Christ really gets tested. Because a lot of people will say, I want to be holy but do you still want that if it means that you have to suffer like him? To what degree do you want to follow Christ? And he says that I may know him not just in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering, fellowship, communion, participation, The sharing of his suffering. And when the Bible says Christ's suffering, there's a very specific picture that's coming to mind. It's not Jesus stuck in traffic. It's not Jesus without air conditioning. It's the particular suffering that Christ lived. He he was kicked out of his own town. He was persecuted by the Pharisees. He was betrayed by two of his apostles, denied by the one who called himself his best friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was arrested. He was unjustly incarcerated, treated as a criminal. He was flogged. He was mocked. He was teased. He was crucified in place of a murderer. And First Peter 1, 22-23, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, Just think about that. When was the last time you did what was right and suffered as a result? And you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. The way with Christ is the way of the cross. And the degree to which you are worshiping Christ is the degree to which you're willing to take one step further. And that's to endure as much suffering as God has ordained if that is what it means for you to follow his son in everything that you do. doesn't mean you go look for suffering. You don't have to look for suffering. It'll look for you. When you wear a cross, though, think about it. When you wear a cross on your neck... It's not just an emblem. That is the example. Today, what it would mean for someone back then when someone if someone in the Roman Empire were to see you walking around with a cross, that's like someone today seeing you walk around with an electric chair on your neck. Execution, criminal execution. This is the extent that Paul says, I have learned to be a worshiper Of Jesus Christ. To what extent are you willing to suffer to be with him? To be conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's heavenly minded. You ever heard of that? That those who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good? That's just not I don't know how else to say it, that's just not true. The only way you can be of earthly good is to be heavenly minded. Paul says, I want to treasure Christ. I treasure him above all else. I trust him and no one else. I want to be like him and not like anyone else. The last thing that goes on in the heart of a Christian, and it's in verses 12 to 14, is that you say, I want to be with him above all else. Not just be like him, but be with him above all else. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it. In other words, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm justified. I'm counted as righteous, but what have I not obtained yet? Every Christian here should be able to say, there is something that I want that I don't have. Correct? There is something that you want, that your heart desires, that you have yet to obtain. Or I've already become perfect, but I Press on. The word here literally is to persecute, to chase after, to hone into, to hunt down. There's something that Paul with all of his energy is single-mindedly looking for and pressing onward so that I may lay hold of that, which was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but how many things, one thing as a Christian, your life is really about one thing. How many things do you want in life right now? If you have a laundry list, okay, clean it up. Okay? From sixty things, just make it to one. Paul says, one thing, just like David says, one thing that I ask, that I will now seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. How many things does David want? He wants. It's not God and a wife. Although that's also that's also a good thing, right? It's not God in school. It's not God in this and God in that. Paul says, I want one thing. Press on. Persecute. You're like a tracking dog. Ever owned a beagle and you notice what it can't stop doing? It sniffs something and there goes your beagle. Why? Because you don't matter to it anymore. As long as it smells it, it is going to keep going until it finds it. It's amazing when you watch a beagle or any kind of a hound track a fox, and the fox is so smart that it actually runs around the dog to see what the dog will do, and the dog actually runs in a circle. It's not smart enough to actually look up and see. It tracks it in a circle because it's following a particular scent. And what Paul is saying is, I have heard the voice, I have heard the summon of God, I was dead in my sins, I'm alive in him, but I have yet to be with him, I have seen him, but one day I will be with him, I've heard him call, and now I'm going and nothing will stop me from wanting to be there. The problem that we have as Christians today is this preoccupation with trying to get our priorities right. You know, in other words, who should come first? Who should come second? Well, this is the, this is the normal laundry list. It's God first, your family second, it's your kids third, and then I guess you have a three A, B, and C depending on who your favorite kid is. And then you have your ministry fourth, and non-believers fifth, and everything else. The truth is, it's this. It's Christ first and second and third and fourth, because He's really all. You want. Not saying that life isn't filled with things that we enjoy. But there's a focus. Your life is about, I should be able to say, you should be able to say about me, I should be able to say about you, that as a Christian, our lives are about one thing. Jesus. Being with Jesus. Being like Jesus. You're resolved and you're focused and you're passionate and you're single-minded and you are unsatisfied in your life until the day comes that you see him. So here was a quote from a song that I thought was very profound. A Christian is someone who spends his whole life longing for the day that it ends. And he says, not just do I press on, but I reach. I reach for the prize. I put the extra, I put the extra gear in there the prize, promise of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All Paul wants is to be with Christ. And he tells the Philippians that in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I don't know which one to choose. Why? Because I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Because even though it is fruitful for me to stay here and minister I have a desire to depart. In other words, I don't want to be here anymore. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And he says, and that is very much better. A true worshiper of Christ thinks this. Jesus is really all I want. Jesus is really the only one I trust. Jesus is the one I want to be like, and Jesus is the one I want to be with. It's Philippians 3, 7 through 14, unveiling the truth of the heart of a worshiper. And you do have to go home and examine yourself and ask yourself, is this what God hears when he inclines his ear onto the confines and the privacy of my heart. No matter what anyone says. And church, verse three fifteen, let those of us pursuing maturity think this way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, for who he is, for the life he lived and for the death he died for his resurrection that gives us power to live and gives us the hope that we'll be with you through him. We pray that our lives would be governed by this description of worship, that we would stand before you with integrity to be able to say that we glory in Christ Jesus, not in anything that we've done, not in anything that we've accomplished, but in everything about who he is and what he's done. We pray for the integrity of our hearts to have clean hands and a pure heart as we stand before you. We pray that Christ would be formed in us, that our affections for him would grow, that our love for him would deepen, and that our yearning for him would only grow stronger and take us all the way to him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.